Hello and welcome to the First Prez Mommy podcast, the show for people on the go who like to stay in tune with the conversations at our church. Today, Pastor Clint Tolbert speaks about Ruth 1, 1 1-17. When faced with an impossible, no-win decision, Ruth clings to her mother-in-law Naomi, expressing a commitment to her, her people, her land, and her God. What does faithfulness look like when there is no good option? Let's hear today's message. If you've had the experience of loving and supporting, walking with somebody who is held captive by addiction, then you likely know what it feels like to be in a place where you have to make a decision, but that feels like there's just really no good option. That's where Stacy and I are this week, one we love, member of our family, uh, will finish another stint in rehab and be released, and she has no one. What will we do? Will we open our home, our checkbook, our heart for the, I don't know, sixth, seventh, eighth, I've lost count, number of times, or will we will we stay true to what we've said, hey, look, this is the last time. If you've been here, you've said that yourself. This is the last time. It's the right decision. What would God have us do? That's, that's what we've been praying about this past week. Now, Gavin just read for us the story from Ruth, and, and it might be a story that seems really alien at first. Like, what does this have to do with, with me, you know? Uh, these people who lived thousands of years ago at a, at a, at a, in a place that's far removed from here with customs and circumstances that really resemble our way of life um, in not too many meaningful ways. But when you recognize the reality that faces Naomi and Ruth and Orpah, And this no-win situation that they're in and the choice to have to make a decision when there really doesn't seem to be a right decision, well, then you go, oh, wait, I think I can relate to that. Because who hasn't been there? Whether it's walking with someone with addiction or some other circumstance, what do we do when we're faced with this moment where we have to make a decision and none of the paths seem right or good? It's into that moment that God's word speaks this morning. Not necessarily telling us which way to go, but revealing the one who walks with us. For the God who walks with Ruth and Naomi is the same God who is with us here in this moment. And God's attributes in this story come out in significant ways. Attributes of mercy and faithfulness that I think will be a great comfort and guide for us as well. And so if you haven't already opened the book of Ruth, I'd encourage you to do that. We're not so much going to point at chapter verse, but we will kind of be instructed by the story, and then at the end, we'll pick up the end of the story in chapter 4, and so you'll want to have it open so you can read that there with me. As you're opening, again, let me just pause and pray one more time. Lord, uh, 
when we come to your word, it is tempting to receive it as something that seems really foreign and alien. But may you give us such faith that we would receive this as your word, revealing who you are and who you call us to be. May you, Holy Spirit, speak to each one in the sound of my voice and call them more deeply into relationship with you, that you may be glorified, Jesus, and that we ourselves might experience the life uh, you so desperately want to offer us. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, if you have it open, I want you to notice the first phrase of the book. Sometimes the first phrase is easily like a throwaway phrase, right? Like once upon a time. We think it doesn't have much significance, but, but notice the phrase that begins this book. Do you see it? What is it? In the days of the judges. This is not a throwaway phrase, but one that is really, really important for our understanding of, of this story. It calls us to recognize a singular story, the story of Naomi and Ruth within an, a greater story that is unfolding. If you're new with our congregation, I want to allow you to kind of come fully with us. We are in the midst of unfolding God's story. We began in in the book of Genesis, and we're traveling all the way through uh, the Word to the day of Pentecost, the age of the church. And so let's just be reminded of the high points of this story that is unfolding, that God in, in Genesis created humanity and entered into covenant relationship with them. God says, I'm going to give you all this and love you, and I want you to love me in return. And, and we know that people responded instead in rebellion. God didn't give up. Later on in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, he says, I will renew, restore my covenant with my people. And I, I keep lift, putting before you Genesis chapter 12, fully verses 1 through 3, but here's just verse 3, reminder. Because you've got you to gotta know this if you're going to understand the story. That through a man named Abraham, God says to his people, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. That as the covenant love was lost in the garden, God is saying, no, 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 I'm going to rescue it. And not just for my people, not just for Israel, but all peoples on earth. Ruth's place is an important part of fulfilling that covenant. Well, of course, Abraham has a son, Isaac, Isaac has a son, Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons, they become Israel. They go into Egypt. We know that story. They're enslaved. They call out to God. God rescues them by a man named Moses. Through the Red Sea they come until they're at the point of a, the base of a mountain. This is where we were last week. And God renews his covenant with his people through Moses. Remember, Deuteronomy chapter 5. This was from last week. Chapter 5, verse 3. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. That is, the covenant is not just something way back then. It's here and it's now. It was for them and it is for us. Through Moses, God gave the terms of the covenant, the law, the Ten Commandments. And the people were called to live by that. Well, that was last week. We skip over some sections, some pretty important ones. 
Like when God led the people into the promised land by a man named Joshua. He's so important, he gets his own book in the Bible. And we just skip it. But you might want to go and, and read it. After Joshua is the time of the judges. And so it's important for us to recognize this time, this era, if we're going to understand Ruth's story. The time of the judges, though this is debated a little bit, the time of the judges is likely around three and a half centuries long. Get your head around that. Sometimes when you read a book of the Bible, you forget about the, 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 the time sequence there. That is to say, it's three and a half centuries longer than our America has been a nation. That's what we see in the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, there is a cycle that is revealed. It's a cycle that took place back then. It's a cycle that we see going throughout the, the story of the Old Testament. That's why it'll be the subject of the sermons for the next few weeks. You can see this image that says, forget, turn, remember. Because this is what God's people do. And frankly, it's a cycle that we can often see in our own lives as well. So during the time of the judges, here's what happens. If you read it. Uh, God blesses his people. They experience and enjoy life based in that blessing, except for they begin to forget where that blessing came from. And so they turn away from God. They face the natural consequences of turning away from God, pain and suffering and violence and death. You know, uh, it's appropriate that you might read the book of Judges in October. If you want a horror story, read Judges, right? If your grandkids say, hey, hey, would you read to me a, a horror story or, or take me to like a haunted house? Say, no, 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 let's read the book of Judges together. It'll give you nightmares, right? They turn away from God and there's great suffering, violence, pain until finally another generation comes and they call out to God, God, will you rescue us? And God sends a rescuer, a hero, someone that's labeled a judge. I'm not exactly sure why. You remember some of those people probably from your childhood, Samson or Gideon. Those are the judges. Remember those guys? And so God rescues them for a time until they forget. <laughs> It was God who rescues them, and so down they go again. There's this cycle that runs throughout the whole book. So it's somewhere within that cycle that Ruth lives. And that time is described as the, at the, with the last verse of the book of Judges. Judges 21-25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I did not know, I did not do my homework to that extent that what Gavin told us that Elimelech's name means God is king. Isn't that interesting? God is king because isn't that what is true? That, that though there was no human king in Israel, there was a king, it's just they kept forgetting him. This was the king who led them through the Red Sea. This is the king who provided quail and manna. This is the king who rescued them from their enemies, and yet they refused to see him. And instead, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Well, if we're tempted to think that Ruth is not a very relatable book to our time, we ought to recognize that phrase. Or isn't that an apt description of the world we live in today? 
that there is no longer one who guides us, who's recognized as saying this is right and this is true. Instead, in our postmodern world, we're told that what is true for you might be true for you, but it's not true for me. And nobody can say that one thing is absolutely true. And in the midst of that chaos, life gets confused and complex and hard and painful. Just go read about the House of Representatives. Right? You got all of these people saying, nope, this is my truth. Nope, this is my truth. And so we the people are left without governance. It's not unlike this day. What do we do? What do we do? Well, this book reveals not so much what we do, but who we should see and who we trust in moments that are really confusing, really complex, really hard, like this day, like our day. I want you to see two attributes of God. The first is God's mercy, as it is so richly evident in Ruth's story. Let's remember the definition of mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is the withholding of that which our disobedience naturally deserves or or results in. So when I would do something wrong as a kid, and my mom would say, go up to your room, wait till your father gets home, (laughs) which happened a few times, and my father gets home, and he says, that wasn't right, and this is what I should do, but I'll not. That's mercy, right? It's the flip side of grace. Grace is the giving of that which we don't deserve. A gift or a good thing or a blessing, something that we don't deserve. Mercy is the withholding. Grace is the giving. It's two sides of one coin. We see in God's, in Ruth's story, God's rich, rich mercy. Mercy that is still available to us. Think about it. Naomi and uh, Ellie Melek. Gavin pronounced it different than I learned, so I'm trying to retell myself. Ellie Melek. Naomi and Ellie Melek face famine, and they leave the land. It's interesting, isn't it? That God's people were drawn out of the promised land because of famine, taken to Egypt, rescued from there, sent back to the promised land. Now there's famine again. And Elimelech and his wife Naomi are there, and they're going, what do we do? We're dying. There seems to be no hope. We have these two little boys. We feel responsible for them. What, What do we do? We are Hebrew people. We are in the land that God promised us. God has promised not only to bring us here, but to care for us here. But we don't sense God anywhere. So what are we going to do? We're going to leave. They'll take the path that Abraham walked only in the opposite direction. Were they wrong in doing so? I, I don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us explicitly that this was an act of disobedience. But I wonder... In God's divine plan, if he's saying, look, I'm giving you this promised land and I'm promising to provide for you here. And and they get to the point where they go, no, no, no. Might that be an act of disobedience? Maybe. 
certainly must have felt like a no-win situation. They go and they're living in Moab. And their boys grow up. They get to the point where they should be married. And where are they going to find wives? Well, obviously, they're in Moab amongst the Moabite people. But there's a problem with that, too. Because while I'm not certain whether going to Moab was an act of disobedience or not, I do know that God has given his people a command in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7. You can read it for yourself. We'll put it up here. Before they go into the promised land, he says this, when the, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. And it goes through and it lists. Don't, don't intermarry with the with the uh, uh, Amalekites or the Canaanites. Or, and he lists all of these groups. Did Elimelech and Naomi know this command? Probably. Maybe they forgot it. Maybe they just went, well, what are we supposed to do? Feels like a, a no-win situation. Tragically, all three men die. Elimelech first, and then sometime later, both of the boys. And if we're going to understand narrative, not just this morning, but as we walk our way through the scripture, because this is a narrative lectionary, right? We're looking at stories. We have to allow ourselves to feel what the characters are feeling. Naomi, Orpah, Ruth, three women in an absolutely patriarchal society, left all alone. What are they going to do? They're vulnerable. I mean, and that's putting it lightly. Vulnerable economically, socially, even physically. There's no one there to protect them should someone want to do them harm. What what does it mean for Naomi to trust God in this moment? To stay here where she's lived now for more than a decade and try to make the best of it? Or, Or to go back, especially hearing that things may not be as bad as they were when she left? What does it mean for Naomi's daughters-in-laws to do right in this moment, to to remain faithful to their mother-in-law, whom they obviously now love, or to go back to their families of birth and try to make a a new go at it, the hope for a future? Do you see the no win? There's no win in this story. And we're familiar with that. I want you to think about some of the no-win situations we find ourselves in. I'll name some of them, not to suggest an exhaustive list, but just to draw us all in to the reality that God's Word speaks to. For some of you, for example, received a diagnosis. It's cancer. And you are given two options. One, you can go through chemotherapy... A treatment that is literally intended to destroy your body. You will invite upon yourself great, great suffering. And not just for you, but for those who care for you. That suffering may last for months in the hopes that the cancer will be eradicated. But there is no promise. Or you could say, look, I don't want to go through that. I'm not going to go through that treatment. Instead, I'm going to thank God for the years that I've lived and and try to enjoy whatever remains. 
Which do you choose? No good option. Some of you have a job that you hate. You hate it. It sucks the life out of you. When you come home, you are grumpy. But it puts food on the table. Your family's secure. What do you do? Do 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 you, for the sake of your family, keep a job that you absolutely hate? Or do you put your family at risk in pursuit of something that you love, something you sense is God-given, and, and maybe God will allow you to experience fulfillment in life that you haven't known to this point, what do you do? Some of you, I know, are going through. Like, What do you do? Do you continue to work to love, to give, to forgive? Do you, do you continue to give yourself to something that seems like a lost cause, Or do you sign the papers and go through divorce and hope that God will give you a better future? It's a no-win situation, right? I mean, these things happen in our life personally, but it's not just happening personally. It happens not just in us, but, but around us. Anyone else felt like this has just been a terribly hard week? Like, I'm reading the paper closely, but I don't want to. I mean, yard signs are going up all around me. That always makes me nervous. You know, I, I, Stacy and I almost never put up a yard sign because we don't want to jeopardize a potential gospel relationship and conversation with someone simply because we might have different political views on something. But we made a different decision this week. We prayed and felt like it was important for us on issue one, you know, issue one, the abortion life thing. We, we put up a uh, vote no to issue one in our yard. We did that because we feel very strongly that, that, that God is the author of life and life begins at conception and this is really, really important. But we also recognize the complexity of the issue. We are not unsympathetic to to women and people who find themselves in in places where they're just going, there is no win here. So it's why we give ourselves personally and through the church to partnerships with organizations like the Pregnancy Center, Mosaic, or Compassion International to try to help. I bring that up not, not to make a political statement, but to to recognize the the complex issues we're all wrestling with. They're local, they're national. Certainly we saw them in global news, right? Who watched videos of Hamas coming into Israel and doesn't absolutely think that Israel has the right to not only defend themselves but to respond? Like, we get that. And yet, how can we not also look at at innocent families in Gaza and, and, and recognize all that Israel's doing and going, oh my Lord, have mercy. What do you do? These are no-win situations into which we, people of faith, followers of Jesus, are going, all right, so what does it mean? How do we follow him in a moment like this? The temptation 
is to think that we have to make the right and faithful decision because that is the basis of our faith. But friends, it is not. And Ruth tells us that. The book of Ruth helps us recognize that it is not our own righteousness, righteousness, but instead it is God's mercy that is the foundation of our faith. You understand that? It's not our own righteousness, but God's mercy that's the foundation of our faith. If we get that wrong, look at what happens. One, we become paralyzed whenever we are placed in this decision where we've got to choose one way or the other and neither seem right. Lord, help us. What do we do? If my faith and my relationship with God is based on my right choice and I could make a wrong one here, oops, I'm paralyzed. Worse yet, if our faith together is based on our righteousness, our right decisions, then we act in judgment and with callousness towards anybody who makes a different decision than we do. It's God's mercy, the book of Ruth says. Not our righteousness that is the foundation for our faith. It's not just the book of Ruth, it's the New Testament too. Look at this one passage from Titus. Titus 3, 5. He saved us. Who do you guess the he is? You're in church. Jesus, let's all say Jesus, Jesus saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And Ruth helps us recognize that. As Naomi and Eli Melech are trying to go, what, Lord, what do we do? And they make decisions. And I don't know if they were right, and I don't know if they were wrong. I don't know if... I almost said Oprah. Orpah is right. Or Ru- but do you see the God of mercy who walks with them regardless? He's merciful to them and he is faithful. Second attribute, faithful. Not necessarily to a person, but to his own covenant to himself. I mean, you can understand uh, Orpah when, when Naomi says, no, 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 daughter, go back to your family. After she persists a bit, she goes, okay, fine, if that's what you want. It makes sense. But why does Ruth persist? Why does Ruth persist in clinging to her mother-in-law? Is it just love and affection for this woman, or is there something deeper? And of course, I'll suggest there's something deeper. That Ruth's language suggests not just a personal affection, but a covenantal allegiance that she might have, not with Naomi, but with God through Naomi. Like Her language is beautiful. Let's read it again, verses 16 and 17. Ruth says, it's got to be in tears, right? Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I'll die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. What is Ruth reaching out for? 
It's not just affection for another person. This is not a Hallmark card. This is covenantal language coming out of Ruth's mouth, suggesting that she has seen in Ruth and in Elimelech and in the people of Israel something that is deeper and wider. Something that she wants. She may not be able to describe it. She may not know it, but she wants it. And friends, this undergirds our life together as the church as well. That our life is meant to embody the covenantal grace and mercy and life of God in and amongst us in such a way that others see it and go, I don't know what that is, but I want it. It's not because we're perfect people, we're not. Nor were Elimelech or Naomi, but something in them pointed to God. And, and Jesus says, something in us should point to him. I mean, I, I feel like I'm just being redundant, but I keep putting in front of you that scene in the upper room where Jesus gathered with his disciples and they shared the last meal. You remember that? John 13. And he, wa- and he washed his disciples' feet. Remember this scene? Give me a head nod, I feel like. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this great act of mercy, right? And the, and the disciples push back and they say, what are you doing? You, this isn't right. And Jesus says to them, look, here. Love one another as I have loved you. For when you do this, others will know you are my disciples. That is to say, when you act in mercy and in love towards one another in radical ways, others will see it. They may not know what they're seeing, but they'll go, that, I need that. I want that. And they will begin to cling to you, as Ruth did to Naomi, to, to the church, and, and hopefully... Ultimately, to Jesus. I mean, this is what the world needs, right? I mean, if our faith is based in righteousness, then we're all making different decisions about what's important. That's what's happening in the world. And the world is so divided, especially our country. Aren't you grateful that the church instead is really unified? No, we're not. That instead of following Jesus' command, we kind of put up our political boundaries and we say, how dare you and how dare you, and the world doesn't see anything different. I'm grateful that maybe, maybe we're, we're embodying something different here, but boy, it's a fragile life. And as we enter towards election season, it, it's in danger. And when bombs go across the other side of the world, it's in danger. So what do we do? I, I don't know. I got the sense this is kind of a convoluted message, right? And some of you might be going, can you just tell me what you think I ought to do? Right? Can you just give me a list? Yeah, I can give you a list. Here it is, okay? What does it mean for us to live together in obedience to God? Well, seek to obey God by his word. Do not hear me saying our decisions don't matter. They absolutely matter. It's just that, as Jason said last week in his sermon, our obedience, our righteousness, is not the foundation of our faith or our life together. It's the evidence of 
our life and faith together. And so it's important to try to seek God and his will to know the word and to act on it. But as we do, Ruth instructs us, let's be merciful towards one another. Because that's how God acts towards us. That if someone is, has a different opinion or, or is in a different place, write them off. Cling to them. As Ruth clung to Naomi, so we cling to one another as the church. And in so doing, hold out the gospel to the world. Trusting not our own righteousness, but in God's faithfulness to his own covenant. See, God's working out a plan. And that plan goes through you and through me and through his church. And we can trust his faithfulness to that plan. Look, let, turn to Ruth chapter 4. I'm just going to read it. I'm almost done. Ruth chapter 4. You've got to see this if you don't know it already. It's incredible. Ruth 4, beginning at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth. You're going, who's Boaz? Well, you need to go read the story, and you'll learn who Boaz is. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life. And so sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons. Think about that in a patriarchal society. Has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse. The father of David, the greatest king of all in Israel and the one who foreshadows the coming of Jesus. In fact, if you go read Jesus' genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew, you will see not only David listed, you will see Ruth. Evidence of God's faithfulness to his own covenant a covenant that says all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. As we face no-win decisions in this very hard time, may we remember the mercy of God shown to us and extend that to one another. And may we trust in his faithfulness to his covenant that works its way out in our life together. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you. Thank you for who you are, for your mercy and your faithfulness, for the love that you showed to Ruth, Naomi, Elimelech, and so many others, and the love that you show to us. May you help us to love you in return as we also love one another. May you, Jesus, be glorified as we do. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed our First Pres Mommy podcast. Learn more about our church at our website, firstpresmommy.org. Have a great week.